Welcome to the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. I am your host, Rachel Usher. I'm an accomplished interior designer and solopreneur, having built my own design practice from nothing into an award-winning and published studio. During my own design journey, I have found the business side of interiors to be secretive and largely conducted from behind the curtain, leaving business owners like myself grappling with the unique complexities of running a design business and often having to learn many things through trial and error. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. This show is designed for design professionals and together with our guests, we demystify the business of interiors. This is the place where we hear from the personal experiences of some of the most talented people that work within the design industry. From entrepreneurs to business experts, together we unravel some of those truth tales about what it really means to not only survive, but to thrive in the creative world of business. Today I will be interviewing Rick Campos. Rick is the founder and podcast host of the Design Biz Survival Guide. Rick is primarily based in Orange County, California. His spirit and energy to open up the conversation with the interior design community is something that caught my interest a couple of years ago. Since that time, I've spoken to him on many occasions. I've been a guest on his podcast and I've also attended one of his retreats in Orange County. It was from that retreat that I took so much learning and inspiration that it drew into sharp focus for me that the vacuum that exists here in the UK around the design community, it's holding us back and it cannot be right. Rick has championed my decision to open up the conversation here in the UK. He has been that gentle hand in my back, giving me a nudge to dare to try. Hi, Rick. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. <laughs> so, Rick, I want to introduce you to our listeners and perhaps explain how we met. From my point of view, Rick, I came across you as a British interior designer, looking around at forums, feeling that there was a complete absence of any conversation. And I came across initially your podcast and I started listening to it. And it was during listening to your podcast that I thought, oh God, I wish those conversations happened here in the UK. And so about 18 months ago, I sent you a out of the blue message saying what you do is great. And I think that you should be doing this kind of thing in the UK, but short of you emigrating, I don't think that's on the cards, but we can talk about that. <laughs> so I just wanted to explain how we met. Um, and the engagement that we've had since then with some of what you offer. But really, Rick, introduce yourself to us and explain who you are and what the Design Biz Survival Guide is all about. Yeah, well, first of all, I so appreciate that you reached out to me. And it's funny, I had no idea that the conversation wasn't happening in the UK. I just assumed that this rise of the design community was happening everywhere. So I'm so glad that you reached out and that we connected. In short, a little bit about me, I mean, I am the host and founder of Design Biz Survival Guide, which is a podcast for interior design professionals here in the United States. And it's really, the foundation of the podcast is really community over competition. So we really talk about, uh, we really focus on the community aspect. And the foundation of the podcast is really just storytelling. So I have designers from all over the country and outside of the country um, come on and talk about their journey of design, what that process was like for them, uh, particularly on the business side. And the goal is to really kind of share some stories about um, challenges and successes 
in the business of design in the interest of helping other designers out there kind of grow their business faster and with some support behind them. So it's, it's been a great podcast. I've had amazing conversations since we started the podcast almost five years ago. It wow. has evolved into business coaching, which is prim- my primary business now. And then we also produce learning events and opportunities for the design community, like the Design Biz Retreat that you came to last year. And that's where we met in person. It is. And my experience of coming to the Design Biz um, Retreat, uh, I think I referred to it to you as boot camp, but it really wasn't. It was a retreat was perhaps the most enlightening professional experience of my design career because I found myself in a room with, what were there, 15, 20 other designers, mm-hmm, yeah. all, all at the top of their game and all sat around just casually chatting and talking and sharing about the things that nobody talks about, how we charge, pricing methodology. Do we mark up furniture? Do we pass on discounts to clients how do we handle difficult clients and difficult contractors you know professionalizing our process and there was such honesty in that experience that I came away from it thinking the UK community is missing out in a big way we are holding ourselves back why do we not have this so Rick before we delve into some of that a little bit more. Can we rewind slightly and understand what brought you to this place? Why did you start what you do now? Well, design in general is a second career for me. And I say that because it's a second career for a lot of people. And so I like sharing that so that, you know, people feel like, okay, you know, I can explore something new, something creative as a career. Um, It took me a while to realize that. So I kind of started off my career in the automotive industry, actually. I went from high school right into the automotive industry. And that's where I stayed for several years. And then I dabbled in some other career paths as well. But nothing was really like super satisfying and fulfilling for me. Um, There was no creativity in what what I was doing. And so in that process, we purchased our first home and it needed a lot of work. And so I really kind of focused my creative energy on renovating the home um, and I was like, you know what? I really enjoy doing this. I, I thought it was it was amazing. And so I decided to kind of explore interior design. And luckily for me here in Newport Beach, California, there's a local design school um, called Interior Designers Institute. And <clears throat> I decided to look into that and see what a formal education in design looked like. And I really liked the concept and I felt like it was a direction that I wanted to take my career. And so I just I just dove into the deep end on that. And I fully invested in um, getting a degree in interior design. I actually stopped working for two years while I went to school and worked like in a design showroom at our local design center. And then I ended up working for a local interior designer as well as as a design assistant. Now, granted, at this point, I was already almost 30 years old. But, you know, I really kind of started from the bottom and worked my way up and learned as much as I could about the interior design industry. And then when I graduated design school, I just launched my own interior design business. Um, It had a retail component, which was, um, my husband calls it the most expensive marketing um, (laughs) uh, campaign ever. But I used that to to meet people and and Mm -hmm. tell them that I was a designer and and, and talk about design. And that was in 2007, 2008. And I did that for about six years. And it was was a great time. It was a 
huge learning experience for mm-hmm. me. I really didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah, um, that's true. I, I knew nothing about the business of design. I came from a completely different world. And I was in a place where I had to ask questions. I had to find out how to run an interior design business. They don't teach you that in design school. They teach you everything mm-hmm. else. They teach you very valuable tools. And, and you're armed with great, great lessons and experience from the classroom. But when it comes time to apply that, especially if you're going to launch your own design business and not work for someone else, there's a lot more learning that needs there to happen. Yeah, yeah, there is. It's interesting that you say you had the retail component because actually that's exactly the way I started. I I was freelancing in my previous career doing interior design work and I'd taken a career break and I'd picked up a really good client, a big client, and it allowed me to establish myself physically as a retail showroom presence. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what your experience of it was because you were operating in a very different market but running the showroom was the hardest element of the whole thing and actually the least profitable. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that I understand that. was one of my that. biggest learning experiences for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't have a portfolio, so I had no way of translating my sense of style, taste, all of that. Um, So the only way I could think of was to have this space and merchandise it in such a way to where when people walked in, they would get this this vibe, this emotion, this feeling, and we would be able to talk about my ability to create that space and recreate something like that for them. It was the only way I knew how at that time. But what I didn't know is, you know, that effort, that marketing effort, you know, required overhead. It required a space. It required inventory. It took a lot of money to get that off the ground at a time when people really weren't spending. The uh, financial markets were really shaky, 2008, 2009. And so, yeah, I took a really big risk doing that. And I learned a lot. Um, That retail component is definitely not for the faint of heart. But I do know that so many designers, it's part of their vision because it really is an amazing way to demonstrate your sense of style and just surround yourself by beautiful things and be and create an environment um, that, you know, design enthusiasts can come in and experience and then hopefully want for themselves. Completely. And it's nice to have unlimited creative license. Nobody's giving you the brief. You can do what you want. And without a doubt, it helped establish me. um, And clearly, it helped establish you. So when you moved out of that context into simply being just interior design, did you have a studio premise or did you just then do it remotely? No, I still had the studio. I just eliminated the retail component completely and just focused on design. And I did that for a few years. And then, like I said, six years into it, what I did is I kind of shut down that entire business and I partnered with another design business, which was just like four doors down from me. Um, I was introduced to an incredible um, colleague um, and I began doing some freelance work for him And about nine months into that, he just hired me and I just basically joined forces with him and um, just dove deep into the luxury market and did that for six years. I was just going to ask, so you were in the luxury market. What was at that time your typical type of project? Um, So we did all new construction, typically ground up, um, coastal properties, vacation properties, um, usually around... 
10,000 square feet or more. So very big homes. Uh, it, it was a really incredible experience. And I actually kind of cut my teeth in the luxury market. So while I was in design school, um, I did what you're supposed to do. And I went to the job board and I responded to a posting on the job board for a part-time design assistant. And as it turned out, I ended up working for one of the most notable designers in Orange County. I had no idea. Like I said, I didn't know anything about this industry. I didn't know who they were. And so it was a real eye-opener for me. I mean, I went from the classroom straight, you know, we started traveling to vacation homes in Park City, Utah, and doing these giant, amazing homes. And I did that for exactly one year. That was my that was my lesson in design uh, because yeah. I think everyone should take the time to work in a design studio and understand how it operates, whether you want to yeah. start your own or work for someone else. It's important to have that knowledge. And so I committed to doing that for one year and it was a real incredible experience. What that did for me is it made me not afraid of beautiful, luxurious, expensive, high-level investment design, which can be very intimidating. Yeah, it can. When you partnered with your colleague um, nearby, you were still working at this very, very high-end market. How did you find that you were able to confidently handle those conversations around money? And that's the one thing that you've just touched on there that I know here is something that designers, they find that hard. Um, Culturally, it's not a topic we approach very well. But also, I think that sometimes the designer themselves doesn't align from a financial point of view exactly with the client. They don't have that client's um, wealth and so find it difficult to present those costs. How, how did you handle those conversations? Yeah, so that second year, the second six years of design is where all of that happened. So my collaboration with that firm allowed me to really dive into the business side and begin to have those conversations both internally and externally. So we talked about it as a team, and then we practiced and demonstrated it outside of the office with our clients. And that's kind of where I got the bug for the business of design, because that's a very complex conversation and it's not easy to have, but it's very necessary. And so I learned a lot about our clients, their profile, trying to you know understand what motivates them, trying to relate to their way of life. You know, um, I don't have as much money as my clients have, but you have to make that effort to understand where they're coming from, why they're protective of their investment, the type and, and level of service that they're used to receiving. And so we analyzed all of that and implemented that into how we do business. And so, you know, you have to make yourself very relatable and it, it's hard to be, um, empathic in a situation like that because you're not on equal playing fields. But the moment that you realize that, then it, everything changes and you just need to focus on the business side and really kind of remove the emotion out of it and, and really just kind of play that business game. But at the same time, acknowledging that these are just, I always say they are ordinary people with an extraordinary access to wealth. That's the only difference between us and them. At the end of the day, they're still people. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like <laughs> we do. And so it is, a, it is a balance for sure, but it's so necessary because let's face it, it's the dollars that drive what we do. And yeah, you know, at right. this level, at a luxury level, it takes a lot of money 
to achieve that level of design. And so you have to be willing to talk about it from the get-go. If that's an uncomfortable conversation, it's going to be an uncomfortable project and relationship. And those relationships last sometimes years. They do. They do indeed. And so how would you handle that kind of narrative with a new client? Would you have an um, example costing to share? What would be your approach to that? What we always like to do is we would take into consideration their overall investment. So let's say, for instance, they're investing, they're building a, let's just say it's a $6 million build. Okay. So if you're you're investing in a $6 million build, and the keyword, by the way, is invest, not spend. Yes. It has yes. a lot to do with vocabulary. Um, if you're investing in a $6 million build, then you start doing the reverse math and you start, you have to, first of all, embrace, this is my design fee and compare mm-hmm. it to that build percentage-wise. And in your mind, say, it's a very small percentage of the overall investment. So A, you have to convince yourself that that is a reasonable number, and then you have to sell that number to the client. The very same way that you convince yourself, you can convince the client by simply saying, listen, this is your overall investment. This is the investment that it's going to take from a design perspective to help you achieve your goal and make it the very best that it can be and get the very best outcome for your investment. And so it's about approaching it that way and really kind of selling, for lack of a better term, that Mm -hmm. no one should approach that level of investment without help. You know, they're not building their own $6 million home. They're relying on an incredible architect and builder. Same thing with the design aspect. Once that home is built and it's completed, you have to live in that home every day. And it's probably the biggest investment of your life. You want it to be a beautiful, amazing space. Um, And we as designers are here to make that happen. But that comes at a cost. And that's about selling the value that you bring to that client, the way that you've captured that. Completely. Would you would you phrase or capture differently the investment into the interior furnishings, the FF&E, or would you also say that that is part of that percentage or is that just design fee? It's design fee and then it's a conversation about FF&E as well. And that's a very important conversation because those are the things, it's, so the design part, it's it's not real tangible. So it's difficult for the clients to embrace those sometimes because It's a whole bunch of work on paper, a whole bunch of numbers, but they're not seeing a whole lot of results from it. The FF&E are the things they're going to see and touch every day once the home is complete. And that's really kind of where the emotion comes in. And so we still talk about level of investment because, again, you're not going to build a $6 million home and put an Ikea sofa in it. It doesn't make sense. And so they want to keep everything, you want to keep everything aligned as far as level of investment. And then it comes down to quality. Um, When it came to FF&E, we were constantly having a conversation about quality because there are so many options out there to choose from. And there's a lot of very economical options to choose from as well. But is it going to be something that you're going to love for years? You know, so this beautiful home, hopefully you're going to live in this home for many, many years. It could be a legacy home and you want it to last. You want it to be amazing. And listen, even if at some point you decide you want to sell it, and move on and maybe build another home with us. Um, You want the home to hold up, hold its value, and still be as amazing 10 years later as it was the day that you finished construction. And I think it's the same approach to beautiful furniture, you know, with a beautiful sectional sofa. You want it to last. You want it to be incredibly beautiful the entire time that you're using it. 
And maybe at some point you want to make a change and you want to be able to reupholster that beautiful investment instead of starting all over again. That's the difference between a low-level investment in FF&E and a higher-level investment in FF&E. And it's got to align, you know, with the home. That's right. And also it aligns with the luxury service that, that we bring. And I also think that we have a, a responsibility to consider the life cycle of the products that we're putting into projects because it is important that we take responsibility for the environment. And, you know, a disposable society is not a sustainable society. So having things that last a lifetime and that are legacy investment pieces is something that I think is an emotional connection as well to that, to that specification. Yeah, you make a really good point. We do have a commitment to our clients. You know, they're hiring us for a reason. They're hiring us for our expertise and for our knowledge. And so I always tell designers when I'm coaching them, always, always, always lead with the very best. And it's not necessarily the most expensive. It's just the best solution for that design. And so always lead with the best. You can always scale it back after having that conversation with the client. But you never want to be in a situation where you are specifying furnishings for a room and everything's approved. And then down the line, the client says, oh, I wish you would have showed me this. You know, and in your mind, you're thinking, well, I didn't show you because I thought it was too expensive or I thought it might be out of your budget. That is a decision for your client to make, not for you. Always lead with your best. You can always go back, but you can't replace it later. Um, That's when you begin to lose that trust and credibility with the client. You never want to compromise that. Yeah, no, that's a very, very good point. Um, And that comes up a lot, actually. And I think it boils down to sometimes gain putting your own investment threshold onto something when your client has a different one. Um, Yeah. You know. We all learn in my office very quickly, don't shop with your own checkbook. (laughs) (laughs) Do not shop with your own checkbook. Because, you know, you may specify something that's like, I would never pay that much for that. Well, no, but you know what? You're not shopping for you. You're working for your client. and, And they're relying on you to find something that aligns with their lifestyle, their definition of luxury. And so, you know, you're working for them. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's really interesting. And so during your experience in the latter years of working as an interior designer, um, what were the most challenging aspects that you felt that any studio faces? Because you've got that experience of having worked for two different companies and also run your own studio. So there may be some commonalities that you've seen across the board that you see time and time again and amongst your coaching clients that you think, you know, this comes up all the time. It's a real pain point for designers. I think the number one pain point for every designer is is, uh, establishing a pricing and fee structure. Um, I I know that it's a really big challenge. I struggled with, with it myself and I struggled with it when I partnered with another design firm. And eventually we just had to embrace the fact that There is no secret formula. It's different for everyone because every design business is different. Therefore, um, the the profitability is going to fluctuate. Um, So I think for designers, and I learned this firsthand, stop comparing yourself to other design firms and other designers. You You can ask another designer, what do you charge? What are your rates? But that doesn't necessarily mean that you should emulate that because they may be running an entirely different business. So it's really important to focus on 
your intention, the number that you have in mind for profitability, the overhead that you have or are thinking about, um, you know, bringing on and the, and what it's going to take to support that. And then you need to pursue the types of projects that will net you that revenue that you're looking for. So sadly, you know, I, I wish that I could say there's a magic number, a magic calculation, um, you know, but there simply isn't. So I think that's the, the sooner we realize and embrace that, the better off we were, because then we focus inward and we're like, okay, never mind what everyone else is doing. We can take into consideration what everyone else is doing just so that we know that we're on a level playing field. But at the end of the day, this is what it costs for us to do it. And either the client is willing to make that investment or not. And trust me, sometimes they don't, but most of the time they do. And when they do, you, then we knew that we were engaging in a project that was going to be not only creatively fulfilling, but profitable. So that you, you don't want to be caught up in a 24, 36 month project that you know from the beginning is not going to be profitable for you. Just because it's an amazing project, if it's going to cost you money, if you're going to lose money doing it, it doesn't make sense. And so I think establishing like all of those, um, those guardrails, if you will, for your business that was definitely something that we learned along the way and that many designers are challenged with as well. And listen, everyone has to start somewhere. So just to be clear, when you start your business, you know, you kiss a few frogs, you got to take yeah. some jobs <laughs> that you wouldn't normally do to pay the yeah. bills and keep the lights on. I get that. But at yeah. some point, you need to kind of cross over that bridge and begin to really fine tune what it is that the service that you provide and the level of investment that you need so that you can support your business and yourself and begin mm -hmm. to enforce those boundaries on your selection process when it comes to um, locking in contracts for projects. Everything that you've said there is just so tangible to here in the UK. It's exactly the same. You know, we have those same conversations and those same struggles. And I think one of the things that comes up quite often with some other designers particularly is the assumption perhaps from some clients that they may benefit from a designer's discount so benefit from some of that margin between trade and retail and I've had those conversations with clients and invariably the answer is I'm afraid not that is part of my business model um, however they're not easy conversations to have um, I'm just wondering if that is something you experienced um, over in the states as well Absolutely. All the time. From the moment I launched my business to the moment I left the design, you know, designing, that conversation happened for 12 years. Not with every client, but it definitely happened. And you have to be comfortable having that conversation. What I always tell designers is don't look at it as defending your business model. Look at it as, as an opportunity to educate your client on your business model. So it's all about having that conversation up front. And it should be one of the very first conversations that you have. Explain to the client, just assume they have no idea how you work because you know what? They probably don't. 99% of the time, they don't. So unless you take the initiative to explain to them how your business works, you don't have to get into all the details, but give them a general idea of your business model and how you make money. They're just going to dream up their own way. And one of the number one ways is, oh, this designer's making all this money on this markup of product. And, you know, that must be how they're funding their fancy car and their fancy handbag. That's not the case <laughs> at all. Like what they see is, is not reality. And so 
it's, it's important to have that conversation up front. Simply explain, uh, we simply explain to the clients, listen, this is our business model and we make money in two ways, the design fee and then our markup on goods. I know that clients don't like the word markup sometimes. They feel like we're taking extra money or charging them above and beyond. So again, going back to vocabulary, instead of saying spend, change that word to investment. Instead of saying markup, change that word to margin. Because let's face it, our clients are business people, most of them, and a lot of them are business owners. They understand margin. They know that a healthy margin is necessary to have a healthy business. And so you start speaking their language and they're not really going to, um, they're not going to come back at you with this whole, you know, I'm not sure about your markup. Can you work on that? Can you reduce it? And so it's just a normal part of the game. And if they're not comfortable with that, you need to know that from the very beginning. You don't want to re- you don't want to find that out six, eight, ten months into it when it's time to start purchasing furniture. You want to know that up front. So just have that conversation early, and it's gonna it's gonna help you know change that that perspective. Mm-hmm. Just focus on informing and educating as opposed to defending your business model. You never want to defend your business model. You're there to inform and educate the client. That's what they're hiring you for. I love that. I think that's great. One of the things I remember, particularly when I came on your retreat, was the panel discussion where Errol was there. Mm -hmm. And I remember something he said, and he said, when it comes to having difficult conversations with clients, tell the truth and tell it fast. And I just thought, (laughs) I love it. I love it. It's so true. Yeah. (laughs) And so simple. And it is, and it's an instant diffuser because once you've said it, it's out there, it's done. Mm -hmm. And it's either acceptable to them or it isn't. And then you can pave a way forward, can't you? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, because there's so much room for gray area in what we do. And, you know, like I said, while we are in the relationship business and they're long-term relationships, you don't want anything clouding that experience. Like, Like Errol said, just tell the truth, say it fast, get it out there so that you know what you're dealing with. Don't let stuff linger. Communication is so important in what we do. And I get it those conversations can be difficult, but it's like, you know, like that, uh, that analogy of, you know, if you have to eat two frogs today, which one are you going to eat first? You eat the biggest frog first, <laughs> get it out of the way and then just move on. I've never heard that analogy, but I like yeah. it. <laughs> Always eat the biggest frog first. And you know, in design, there's a lot of frogs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> We've had a couple come up today. Oh dear. <laughs> so Rick, you, took the decision to move on from interior design. What prompted that? I did. Um, what prompted that was really my fascination with the business of design. So like I said, in that second six years of, of design, I really had an opportunity to be a part and a voice in running the business. And not only did we have conversations internally, the principal and I, but I also had conversations externally with other designers because I was tasked with the responsibility of um, resolving and coming up with strategies for some of these challenges that we experience in the business of design. And I couldn't just make up an answer. I had to start talking to people and asking questions and seeing what other people were doing. And having those conversations with other designers was really fulfilling for me. And it actually kind of replaced that fulfillment that I was getting from working with clients on a design level. And so there was a time when I would be so excited to put together a beautiful design, deliver a beautiful project, do an installation, present the home. It was just, 
you know that feeling. Every designer gets it. It's it's amazing. It's incredible. So fulfilling. And I began at that experience began to lose its luster and it was replaced with my conversations with other designers and troubleshooting the business of design. And so at a certain point, I was no longer all in on the client side and I had to make a decision, you know, and I definitely didn't want to leave the industry. Um, I wanted to stay in the industry because I love it. And so I just basically created a new career path for myself to basically inform and inspire other designers through conversation on how to build and continue building an efficient and profitable business of design. And um, it was a it was a big leap. It was a real yeah. big step. You know, mm-hmm. I was in a very comfortable place, um, but I just felt like that needed to exist. And there was a void in the market and I wanted to fill that void. And so I took a major, major leap and it was very scary. I'm here to tell you, it's it wasn't easy. It was very scary. I can say that now, five years later, the first year I was like, oh, I've got this. <laughs> full of confidence. And, um, but I was really scared to death inside. But it was the best decision I could have ever made because the design community has shown me that what I do, and by the way, I'm not the only one that does it. Mm-hmm. So what we do is so valuable and so necessary. Um, and it's just, I really think I found my calling. So when you made that leap, was that a, you finished in the design studio on the Friday and you were Design Biz Survival Guide on the Monday, or did you have a bit of a an overlap? I will say that I started the podcast a year before I left design entirely. So I started the podcast in 2018, and I did that while I was still at my design firm. And I gave it a year. I have this thing about giving everything a year. Uh, so I gave it a year, and in my mind, I developed what that big picture was going to look like. Because at the time, and, and even now, it's it's not easy to be fully supported by a podcast. You know, they're, it's a great business model, and it's really going places, but I knew that there had to be more. And so I spent a year developing a bigger business model that included business coaching, and that included learning opportunities for designers. Um, and in 2009 is when I launched that. And so the podcast had already been going for a year. Then I cut the cord completely from design and... Kind of like what you said, I stopped working at my design firm on a Wednesday and started with my first coaching client on a Monday. And that first client turned into a 18-month project, actually. (laughs) And I had a few other clients in between, and they really showed me that this was a viable business model. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. I've just continued to pound away at it and you know, make new connections and grow the business so that I can continue to have these conversations and provide great content and information and education for designers. And the contribution that you give to um, certainly your U.S. community is, you know, it's palpable. You can see it. And, And I agree there are other, and I've mentioned them to you before, there are some really talented um, coaches and podcast hosts out there on your side of the Atlantic, certainly. Mm-hmm. And it's aspirational, it really is. So talk to me then about the service you offer in relation to your coaching and how that works. What what do you do to support the designer? So what I do with my coaching, it is a little bit different than what's happening kind of across the board. 
I really focus on one-on-one coaching. So I don't do group coaching. I don't do like Facebook groups and all of those things, which are all great business models. And, um, and they're very community-based and I support them 100%. But the way that I like to approach coaching is really on a one-on-one basis. So um, it's a little more difficult to scale. I realize that, but it's definitely more personable. And so my approach to coaching is when a designer reaches out to me, we have a conversation. We have a discovery call, very similar to design. And we Mm -hmm. talk about what their goals are, what they're trying to achieve and what's holding them back. And that's when I determine if I can actually help them or not, because I don't know everything. (laughs) I only know what I know. And so that's when I decide if I can help them or not. And then we kind of work together on building a strategy. I call it a roadmap on overcoming that obstacle, but we work one obstacle at a time. And so I'm never going to be the design coach that says, I can help you grow your business to a seven-figure business in 10 months. That's, that's not my approach to coaching. My approach to coaching is, what is your challenge? What do you want to achieve? How can I help you achieve that? Okay, let's work together to do that. Because at the end of the day, it's up to the designer to execute um, that vision, that strategy that we come up with. So that's the difference between coaching and consulting. Um, I could show up and execute it for you, but that's not what it, that's not how I work. And so it's really all about the designer executing the strategy that we develop together, and we tackle one challenge at a time. And I think that does offer the most benefit because everybody. I know and my own experiences as well sometimes you turn to coaching because there is a pain point there's an obstacle there is something that maybe has happened Mm -hmm. and you find yourself floundering or a bit lost so it is good that a a designer can lead that a little um, and then with your skill and expertise you can wrap around them a bit and go hey you know perhaps we should think about this side of things because it would help that and guide them a little bit that way too yeah, completely, completely. I mean, um, like I said, there's a lot to be said for the those other programs and how they work. It's just not how I work. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like focusing on very specific, you know, goals and challenges and solutions. Um, and it just works best for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, like I said, you know, by not having an online course like most coaches have, I'm not able to influence 30 people at a time and experience the revenue associated with that. I realize <laughs> that. But it's just my way. It's just my approach to coaching. And it, it feels right to me at the moment. Um, so that's currently what I do. And as a result, I'm only able to take on about five or six coaching clients at a time, max, because there's only so many hours in a day and a week. But again, for me, it's about fulfillment. And so um, as designers, we sacrifice a lot over our careers. Um, and one of those things is fulfillment. And now that I've made that switch, that change, it's all about fulfillment so, you know, yes, it's still about money. It's still about revenue. I have to support myself. I have to keep the lights on. But it's really about the best possible experience for me and the designer that I'm working with. So that's kind of how the coaching works. To take you back a few steps where you said, because I do it this way, I don't um, guide 20 people at a time. But in fact, you do because you do your design biz retreat. So that True. is True. your group coaching in a way, isn't it? You know, getting lots of people in a room, but it's still face-to-face. It's very much got that personable element. Yes, you're right. Retreat is a, is my response to kind of informing a larger group of people. That approach, again, though, is different. Um, I'm not getting, um, you know, 20-plus people on a Zoom call. Mm-hmm. I'm 
I chose to go above and beyond and gather those people into a space and kind of sequester them for two days <laughs> and bring in, you know, expert speakers to really kind of remove them from their day-to-day business and allow them to completely invest in the future of their business and how they can grow the personal development, the business development. Um, yeah, that's what we do at retreat. And I've been on one of your retreats and was quite gutted that I couldn't come to this one, considering it is so <laughs> close to my property out there. Um, but hopefully next year. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So your retreats, then how often do they run? And just explain the format, the time scale a little bit to our listeners. Yeah, so we do the retreat once a year and it's in the fall. So we just had our last retreat a few weeks ago, actually, in Palm Springs. It was incredible. And um, we posted it. This will be, this was our fourth annual. So next year will be our fifth retreat. And we got some really exciting things planned for that one. But um, the basic format is, like I said, you know, we, we basically take 24 designers on a two-day retreat in Palm Springs or Orange County because we go back and forth. And, you know, we really just kind of focus on the community aspect. And we have those conversations that you were describing at the beginning of this conversation. It's a very safe place to talk about pricing, to talk about challenges in the industry, to share your contract, to talk about client onboarding, to talk about employee retention, all of the things that you kind of can't talk about in your day-to-day in your office. And listen, most of most designers, they run a very tight ship. They have a small business. Not a lot of designers can afford the luxury of having a business partner or a director of business development in-house where they can have these conversations and strategize these things internally. So this, I'm trying to provide an opportunity once a year for designers to step away, dive into their business, ask questions, and develop their strategy uh, of success for their business. And Mm -hmm. so we bring in a lot of people to support that. You don't have to, you don't listen to me for two days. I only (laughs) talk for about an hour or two, the entire two days. Uh, We usually bring in five other speakers, all of whom touch on topics that are relevant to the business of design. And then naturally there's lots of Q&A, there's round tables, there's drinks involved after (laughs) hours. And that's when the conversations get really juicy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'd agree. And I think the other thing that is, a value that comes from it is the legacy. I can certainly tell you that I've remained friends with many of the people that were on that retreat and and regularly actually exchange texts or email, which is really, really nice because it does yeah. give you that ongoing ability to pick up the phone and go, oh, what do you do when you come across <laughs> this situation? And it's great because it's that community that you're creating or helping to build in the US that you know that I am desperate to create here in the in the UK. Yeah, I always say that, you know, 24 designers show up as individuals and they leave as a community. Mm. It happens every single time. So at this point, we literally have hundreds of designers now who are comfortable calling each other and asking that question. Maybe mm. when they walked in that room, they didn't have a single resource or a single person that they could honestly ask, I made this mistake in my business. Have you ever done it? And how did you overcome it? My clients are giving me grief on my contract or my markup. What do you do to help overcome that, uh, mm. that situation? What does that conversation sound like to you? A lot of designers don't have anyone to ask that question to. When you leave my retreat after two days, you literally have a room of 24 people plus who yeah. you can ask that question with total confidence, 
no judgment. It's community. It is. And I'm working on you to bring your design business retreat to the UK. And I I really want to do that because like I said at the beginning of our conversation, I had no idea that this wasn't happening everywhere. Mm. Um, I I just assume that the same message that myself and people like Luann Nigera and other people that do what I do, the message that we're spreading in the States is also happening in the UK. Apparently it's not. And Mm -hmm. we're here to change that. Yes. Great. Yeah. Watch this space for that, certainly. <laughs> so design, biz, survival, guide, are they the two elements or is there any other strings to your bow that go with it? No, that's primarily it. So it's the podcast, mm-hmm. it's coaching, and it's the events like what we just described. So it's yeah. a three, three-prong kind of a business model and, and that's how I describe it. Combine that all together and it allows me to, to continue to do what I do. So much like the business of design, you need, you know, revenue coming in from different streams to balance mm-hmm. it out and make it all whole. And that's how I've created my business model as well. And it's thriving. So I'm going to ask you the kind of closing three questions that wrap Ooh. up our conversation. Sure. So if you could go back to young Rick at 18, what would you, what advice would you give him? <laughs> Oh, young Rick at 18. He was so rambunctious and boy, he just, he had no idea. (laughs) I think I would tell him to really cut to the chase. I wish that I was able to um, cut through. uh, I wish I understood what limiting beliefs were at that time and the impact that it has on your future. Uh, I would have focused, you know, we're all confident when you're 18. Call it cocky, Mm -hmm. call it what you will. And I wish that I would have known how valuable that would be down the line. And, um, you know, I wasted a lot of time getting to the place that I'm at now because of limiting beliefs, imposter syndrome, and all the things that we experience as individuals and as business people. And I've done a lot of soul searching. And I, I use high school a lot, actually, as a point of reference for the, for the place that I'm at now. Uh, a lot of things in high school inspired me to be the person that I am now. And I feel like there was this weird gap in between where I lost that. And Mm. so I think I would tell myself to really kind of stay focused, uh, believe in myself and and really kind of cut to the chase. I realized that life is a learning experience, but I think that I wasted a lot of time, you know, doubting myself and not really living my own definition of success. It's something that had to be learned over time. And I know that you can't fast track it, but I think if I was a little more focused on that, I could have been in a place to be of service to others sooner. That's very, very powerful. And over your career as a whole, then what has been your greatest lesson in business? One thing that shaped you the most? That failure is a lesson and there's mm-hmm. absolutely nothing wrong with it whatsoever. That was one of the, you know, closing my business was probably one of the hardest things I ever experienced in life. It was it was so defeating um, because no one ever taught me that there are lessons to be learned in failure. So I had to learn that for myself and it took time. And so listen, even the most successful business people in the world have experienced failure. And those people didn't say, oh, I screwed it up the first time. I'm not going to try it again. I'm just going to change careers. I'm going to do something else completely. You know, that's, that's not how failure works. Failure is actually a really good thing because uh, mm-hmm. it teaches you things. It may not seem that way at the time, but I tell you what, the lessons I learned um, from 
from having to shut down my business. I mean, at the end of the day, that was a business failure. I can sugarcoat it and call it a whole bunch of other things. But at the end of the day, it was a failure. Um, but it was the biggest learning experience of my life. And it allowed me to influence and help others in their business. And it helped me grow this new business into something that I just never imagined it would be. Everything you've said there, Rick, is just so profound. And I know that so many people will be absorbed listening to those words because very few people stand up and, and own it, you know, and quite often they're not honest about it because it is hard. Running a business is, you know, I've run my business 11, 12 years and it's quite frankly the hardest thing I've ever done. And I would say that my previous job was pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> but there are days when I go, I wonder if they'd have me back. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? It is. And being honest and open and saying, you know, what we do is really tough and it's really hard. And sometimes we break. Um, I think that really acknowledges the journey that everybody goes through. Yeah. And I think too, that, you know, that's where community comes in. That's mm -hmm. when your network really comes in. You may think you have a network of people that support you on a business level, but until you can have those real conversations, um, that's when you truly experience the value uh, of, of community is when you can have that conversation with a peer uh, like I had to have and say, hey, listen, I'm in a place right now where I can no longer afford the studio space. I'm going to have to let it go. And that mm -hmm. other peer say, you know what? I'm in that exact same space. So why don't we both go in on your studio space because it's better and we can both continue to run our businesses the way that we enjoy running our businesses and not have that looming, you know, um, fear uh, of that overhead. If we never had that honest conversation, that solution would have never come to fruition and everything could have changed. So, yeah. You know, call it luck, circumstance, whatever. The fact that you just happened to be four doors down from somebody who I'd have that conversation with, um, really helped turn, turn your journey, didn't it? Quite a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Had I not been vulnerable in a conversation with him, I who knows where I'd be right now? Mm. Who knows where I'd be? And so, what's next for Rick Campos and the Design Biz Survival Guide and your latest YouTube channel? I'm coming to the UK. That's what's next. <laughs> um, yeah, I will say what's next. One of the things that I've really enjoyed this year is now that we can all travel again freely, and I mean very freely, um, I've hit up a lot of markets. I've gone to a lot of different uh, markets in Dallas and High Point and, and Seattle. And I plan to do that a lot more. I love going to markets. I love being around designers. You're my people. That's mm -hmm. where I want to be. I'm hosting panels. I'm having discussions. We're doing uh, learning events. And for me, that's really exciting. And I plan to do more of that. So plan on seeing me on the road a lot more in 2025, uh, both here in the United States and quite possibly abroad, because to me, that's the best way to spread this message of community over competition is to be there face-to-face -face with the designers. Listen, the podcast reaches hundreds of thousands of people across the world, and I think that's amazing. But again, going back to the foundation of our business, our industry, we are relationship-based business, and I've got to see my people. I want to see you in person. I want to hug you. I want to talk. <laughs> I want to have that conversation with you. And uh, the best way for me to do that is to be on the road. So God help me, at 52 years old, <laughs> I am now uh, decided that I'm going to hit the road 
And uh, I don't know. Let's see what it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> An intrepid traveler. <laughs> I tell you, you know, I, I I don't travel as easy as I used to. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I very much hope that um, you do come to the UK, and I know that's a conversation we are working on. Um, and I'm so disappointed I didn't get to cross paths with you in Paris because I know that you were there. Um, yes. Maybe next year. And Absolutely. I also hope to be coming your way and seeing you again at your retreat, hopefully Definitely. next year. Rick, thank you so much for coming on. I think your conversation really is probably the boldest um, that I'm likely to have in my early podcasting days because <laughs> I am having a new conversation with people. And I think mm. that, you know, you're able to just come along, have the conversation and say it, whereas we're just kind of building up to it. We're taking steady steps. <laughs> <laughs> Tell the truth and say it fast. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Rachel, I, I can't thank you enough. Listen, I, you are truly an inspiration. Like this is, you're one of the, you're the reason why I do what I do. To come in contact with a person like you and then have a conversation and to hear you say, we need more of this and I'm going to be the person to make that happen. Like that is so inspiring to me. That is the, that is the, what is the word I'm looking for? I, that is how I want to inspire and empower people. And so you've shown me that through connection and through community, you're able to take a new risk in the yeah. interest of elevating the design community and informing and inspiring others. And that is super inspiring to me. So A plus, kudos to you for starting this podcast. <laughs> I know it's not easy. I know it's intimidating, <laughs> but you're doing an outstanding job and it's an absolute pleasure to be on your podcast. Rick, thank you so much. I am truly grateful. I will um, let you into a secret that I first asked Rick to come on my podcast. I said, look, <laughs> this is like asking my favorite chef if I can cook them a meal and I can only do toast. So I, I hope you enjoyed your toast and thank you so much for the conversation. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Rachel. say that I'm grateful for Rick coming on my podcast would be quite the understatement. Rick has inspired me profoundly to such an extent that he is the reason that I am sat here today recording this with you. When I listen to Rick and I listen to his willingness to be vulnerable and to be really candid about some of the challenges that he has faced in his business journey, I realise that the absence of that narrative here in the UK is the reason why I am trying to shape this conversation and open it up to the community so that other designers in other businesses up and down the country or further afield can listen to people like Rick and understand that together there is a better way. Learning from people's hard lessons and lived experiences and the way in which they have used those situations as stepping stones to achieve something greater than they were already doing is actually part of the influence that we take and the biggest lesson of all that these generous guests give us. I hope that you've learned something today from Rick and everything that he gives to the design community in the States. And I hope that by hearing these stories, you too realise that we're a community and together we're better. Thank you for joining me. 
I have loved having you here with me on the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. If you are a designer and would like to hear more conversations from other design professionals, from the kind of people who at one time or another have been right where you are, then I do hope you will follow the show and listen again in two weeks' time. I'll be right here, wherever you would usually find your podcasts. Just search for If These Walls Could Talk by the Business of Interiors. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, talk about sponsoring the show or work with me, please reach me at hello at thebusinessofinteriors.co.uk. Finally, it means a lot to the success of this show if you could follow, leave a review and share this program amongst your design community. This show is sponsored by Rachel Usher Interior Design. Thank you so much for joining me.